I am Mary Walter, and you are listening to the Team Gurus Podcast, where we feature wide-ranging discussions about the issues that matter on teamwork and leadership. We have real conversations with experienced and successful leaders focusing on the practical insights that help anyone wanting to be a better team member or team leader. I'm Brian Buford. As the president of Paradis Lagardere's retail division, Nikki Harland oversees approximately $800 million in sales that contribute to the organization's continued success and standing in the travel retail industry. She has leadership responsibility for store operations, merchandising, business transformation, and HR. Nikki is also a founding member of the organization's Diversity Inclusion Council. With over 25 years of business and specific HR experience, Nikki has contributed to various change initiatives in her career that have propelled turnarounds and growth efforts within organizations. Her work experience includes responsibility in dining, retail, entertainment, and professional sports. Prior to her current role, Nikki was the Senior Director of Field HR for Gap, Inc. Old Navy Stores. In this role, she provided people leadership for the brand's 1,000-plus stores and 45,000 employees in North America. Additional leadership experiences also included Turner Broadcasting System and Toys R Us. In 2017, Nikki joined other leaders in Atlanta and was recognized as one of Atlanta's top 100 women of influence. Nikki and her husband Joseph reside in Atlanta with their 15-year-old son. Nikki, welcome to the podcast. We are just thrilled to have you with us today to hear about your career and your learnings as a leader and to share those with our listeners. So would you like to kick us off and tell us a little bit about your career and your background and how you got where you are today? Oh, for sure. So first, thanks for having me. I was so excited for the invitation. So again, a huge thank you there. Um, So really, my story is a little odd. I'm a native Atlantan. I, I grew up the youngest of three um, to two educators. My dad had at the time had done um, college professorship at Morehouse College and um, was public educator and my mom as well. So um, my sister was in uh, counseling. I was the one that kind of stepped away from education and decided to kind of chart a path somewhere different. Went to Spelman College in Atlanta, undergraduate, studied psychology and English. Um, you know, I was basically told I wouldn't make a ton of money in English, but I loved it. I love Shakespeare a little bit. So that was really, really fun for me, actually. Um, got an MBA at Clark Atlanta University here in Atlanta. Actually also met my husband there. So uh, double benefits there for, for going after education after my college degree. Um, started very young, uh, 18 as an HR assistant um, intern that converted into an HR assistant with Turner Broadcasting in Atlanta. Mm. And at the time, Ted Turner, uh, for everyone that knows Ted, owned uh, CNN, Cartoon Network, all of that, but also the Braves and the Hawks, the sports franchises here. And what was quite interesting at that young age for me, um, there were no playbooks for anything. I was given kind of like a phone list and some papers and said, go have it and learned a lot. So I believe very strongly in accelerating career growth and making people uncomfortable because that's been a, a real big benefit for me. Um, really, really move fast through Turner, advance um, to positions that quite frankly, I didn't think I would be able to do at such an early age, but was very, very excited about that. Got a phone call to join the retail work for, uh, force from an HR perspective. 
and um, took a role with a little brand at the time called Old Navy. <laughs> and um, that one phone call turned into years and years of uh, friendship, learning, mentorship, uh, development. And um, I credit all of my career experiences with what I'm doing today. But I would say, quite frankly, the team and the folks that I worked with at Old Navy and Gap Inc. at the time were really, really great for me. Um, the second piece I would tell you, um, leading out of that, and this is what happens with folks with challenge and, and change in career. I left Old Navy and went to do some work with Toys R Us and Babies R Us. They were looking to integrate. And again, kind of from an HR perspective, um, learned a lot then too, was able to reconnect with uh, a couple of folks I worked with in the past. So I, I'm giving probably a little bit more of my career journey, but it's been a large part of who I am. Mm-hmm. And so uh, fast forwarding through my time at Toys R Us, which was great, um, went back to uh, Gap Inc. and Old Navy. So I'm what you call a boomerang. You know, mm-hmm. your people actually defining it that way. But when someone said it to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I am. And um, did some work with the stores across North America um, under the direction at the time of one of my um, now close friends, but but mentors. And so that was great. Accepted another phone call at a certain point and uh, basically found myself at what was then Parodies. Um, airport concessions that I'd never heard of, ever, ever heard of that, um, but had one conversation with our CEO and found it to be the place where I wanted to trust my career and time and talent. And that has evolved in seven years to me now sitting in the president's role. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a bit of a longer response there about myself. Um, I will tell you away from work, I am the mom of a brilliant, I have some bias, 15-year-old um, and so when I'm not working, I love watching a little travel baseball because he is very committed to baseball and loves it. Um, and then I'm the wife of an exceptional husband who I don't even know sometimes what I've done to deserve him in my life. But um, we are kind of a small and mighty team in our house. So, yes, Mary, long, long answer. That's who I am. <laughs> I love your advice on taking the job that you don't even think you can do. Um, it's funny, I was just mentoring a young leader this morning and said the same thing. You know, my advice is take the job that you think you're going to fail because that's where you're going to learn the most. And I just think if if there's one takeaway already from this time together, I think taking the job that you don't think that you can do is what gets you to the presidency. Well, and, and Mary, I just have to hook into that a little bit to say even the presidency. <laughs> so um, I've been doing HR since I was 18. And I'm very far from 18 today, but um, one of the things across the career was really, again, aligning to kind of the uncomfortable space and stretch assignments. Um, I've done a lot of work that I think traditional HR folks have not done, um, and it helped me. And I've always received credit for understanding the business and understanding operation. I just wanted to do that. I didn't necessarily do it for a gold star, but in the chair that I sit in today, I find it to be extremely valuable. Mm. Um, and literally the conversation in October from our CEO, when he sat me down to present this opportunity to be president, um, I kind of gave him a couple of reasons why I might not be quite ready, <laughs> but I will do it. And the advice that I give folks that I talk to, especially women and folks of color, individuals of color is, don't discount why you should not be in the chair. <laughs> Figure it out, learn, and take it. 
but I did everything opposite at that time um, from what I advise other people to do. But it's okay to be uncomfortable and um, it will just simply work out if you work with great people. Nikki, just to go back a bit, when you'd mentioned at Gap and, and Old Navy that there there were a few people that were, were pivotal, that, that made it great. Um, who were they? And I'm less interested in the names, but I guess the roles, your relationship, and what was it that made that so pivotal and developmental and really had a positive impact? So I'll tell you one in particular, and, and he's on my kind of live text back and forth. Um, I believe Mary knows him well, too. He was so at the time, I was a regional HR manager. So I covered, at the time, the, the, get, the, the map within Old Navy was not traditional, Southeast, Northeast. We just kind of spread across where we were needed. Um, and he was a zone vice president in the West. And it moved before, before that, he was a um, HR director. And it was a assignment for him to go from operations to, to HR. He flew to Atlanta, had some time with our team and said, hey, Nikki, I want to take you to lunch. There were about six HRMs, I think at the time we were a team. And I'm like, sure. And we had, you know, my first time with them kind of one-on-one and um, we were the direct opposite. So we had done a Myers-Briggs as a larger group and you know how they line you up across the room, um, the E's all the way on one side and the I's on the other side. So he was very far over on the East side and I was very far over on the I. But over this lunch, he said, hey, look, I, I have a project. And it was actually to figure out how we could have a next generation store in Tampa, Florida. It was in Tyrone Square. And, um, you know, he said, I want you to lead it. I want you to do this work. Like, you know, we'll, we'll make sure you're covered on your day job, but you can, you know, I need you to do it. And he explained to me over lunch why he thought I could. And again, never in my wildest dreams did I even think that I could do anything like that. And he trusted me. So really to your question of, you know, what made it stick, it was just the statement that basically someone had my back in case I really, you know, flopped at this. Um, but then, you know, he said, I trust you. You have the right instinct. And he didn't talk about me being an HR person. He didn't talk about needing an ops person. He needed a leader. That was it. It was kind of like, you know, you had me at hello. And two weeks later, I was on a plane to Tampa doing some work, going back and forth. And I built the most incredible working relationship with him that, again, I'm, I'm quite lucky to have um, even today as he has gone on to really big things in a, in a really great organization. And they are quite lucky to have him as well. I still get advice and I still give advice, by the way. So <laughs> our relationship has matured to a point where um, we can, you know, put politics to the side. But everything else, we have a little bit of a give and get, and um, that just matters a lot. And so yeah, for me, taking a big leap on an assignment like that, that was high pressure at a very challenging time in Old Navy's history, because we were going through a fair amount of change and trying to figure out who we were um, for this man to, you know, jump into my little car and, and have me, you know, go to lunch and sit and tell me all these things was uh, a career defining moment. And again, I'm lucky for that. It also gave me, again, I was not raised in a corporate or business environment. And in fact, my father um, passed away two years ago, but all of my conversations with him, he always said, regardless of the title, he said, you just need something to fall back on, Nikki. You just need something to fall back. He was quite distrusting of anything outside of the education space. Hmm. So, you know, conversations like that with Brent really opened my eyes um, to other conversations with 
other individuals as I've moved through my journey, including here, I did a, another assignment that I think really helped prepare and propel me into the president's role. And it was to lead the acquisition of um, our dining business in 2018. Our CEO, who I also would consider a, a mentor, called me into his office and said, hey, look, we're going to need someone to lead all of this. And so I, I gave him a list of people again. I gave him a list and he listened to the list and was very respectful and, and kind of said, OK, Nikki, I want you to lead it. So I hear you, but I want you to lead it. And, um, you know, that was my life for about two years. and. I knew nothing about restaurants um, other than eating and being an amateur foodie. Um, and uh, it, it helped. And uh, it's one of the things that I kind of latched onto and really think a lot about even today in my current role for things that I'm, you know, not as well acquainted with, but I've, I've, I have proved to myself that I can figure it out and I have um, allies and folks that I can call on, but early conversations years and years ago helped pave the way for where I am today. And would you say in terms of that willingness to dive right in, get uncomfortable, kind of, have you always been like that, like growing up as a kid, or was there a change? And, and if so, where did that happen? Because I think that's important. Yeah, I, I wasn't. Um, I, I was a safe kid. I, I knew the rules. I didn't, you know, I, I won't say I didn't break a few, but um, I, I just knew them and I respected them. Probably didn't make that break that many with two educator parents. Yes, it was yeah. it was very hard to do that. I would say yeah. there's little you couldn't find out about our family um, with with um, my parents' friends in the system. So <laughs> uh, we knew they knew everything. You couldn't hide the report card. I would tell you that. Um, but it, it really was one of those things that I think as I stepped out when I was at Spelman. I was a psychology and English major. One of the wonderful and amazing things, I, I you know, won't take up all of our time talking about Spelman, but it was one of the best experiences of my life. And knowing that when I went to Spelman, I was an undecided major. So I, I said to my parents, I know I need a college degree. Um, a liberal arts school is great. Um, we grew up around Spelman because my mom was a Spelman alumna. Um, so I felt safe there. But really exploring and feeling that a psychology degree would help me understand a lot of different things that could help in a lot of different places, but also taking economics classes and mm. things like that. That was safe but risky because folks coming out of those classes at the time were going to Wall Street. And, uh, you know, I have some friends that are still up there and, um, you know, not that courageous, but I would tell you, it just kind of gave me the, it's okay to do something different. Um, and just to, to really understand that you wanted to do things that carry passion and to have that passion, you have to have some courage. So I would say within college, it did, you know, that experience did that for me, Brian. And um, later on, there were other kind of pieces of evidence along my journey um, for me that said it's okay to take one more really big step and one more really big step. Mm. Um, in getting an MBA, uh, my family, uh, my, my dad and my, my mom both had uh, doctorates, um, but in education. And so when I said I was going to grad school, again, kind of the fallback, my, my dad advised me to go get an education degree in case none of this worked. And I just looked him in the eye and said, no, I want to kind of figure this out. And I'm going to go after a business degree. And at the time, I thought maybe I'll even go get a JD. I don't know. And his eyes got pretty big. So um, that's probably 
early, early adulthood is where I felt very comfortable. I'm struck by the intellectual curiosity and being willing to uh, lean into that and take a course in economics, even though that wasn't your major. And I, I wonder, one thing I'm curious about making this transition from being HR into operations, and as you describe way back with that vice zone vice president being in retail, you were stepping outside of the traditional HR realm. And I think so many people get constrained by their title or their role or their job description. Do you have any advice for people about how to show up so that you will get that tap on your shoulder from the CEO for the big project that's totally outside of your expertise? How do you show up in a way that people don't pigeonhole you? I I think, Mary, it's a really great point. Um, I believe in being there for the total enterprise. So you know, you can be an accountant, you can be an HR person, legal operations, it doesn't matter, be there for the business. And when you're there for the business, you learn the business, right? You're, you're not expected to be an expert in everything. That's why the different functions exist, but, but be there for that and feel okay. Um, and so I, I liken that to an organization like ours, but I'd say, you know, um, in a law firm, just no other practices, no other things, but you know, it doesn't mean you have to abandon and do something quite different, but be okay with that. So you show up kind of for the greater good. And I think that's what's recognized when, you know, it's time and it, it's not um, chasing a title. Again, my dream was to be an HR director. <laughs> that was, that was my dream. And at a younger age, I hit that and I was great. And then I kind of looked ahead and said, well, I have a, a long way to kind of continue to work. So let's just see where this all takes me. But um, I knew I wanted to help and I wanted to help drive something I believed in. So when you show up and you can be that authentic, things will happen. Things will happen. Yeah, that's terrific. And it, it implies to me too, having the courage and the confidence, you know, to realize, I think sometimes I talk to leaders and they don't they, they care about the enterprise as a whole, but they feel like they don't have the, they can't speak up because they don't have the confidence. I'm not an expert in that area, but I think you're right. If your heart's in the right place and you're truly with good intent, caring about the enterprise, you'll get it. And it's, it's okay to lean in that way. And mm-hmm. sometimes they trust you. So that's the piece, Mary, too, that they trust your opinions, they trust your ideas, but they trust you. And so again, that's the piece of, of being authentic and showing up for the purpose of why you're there. And perhaps not always just simply for yourself. You, you will get the benefits. You will get the personal benefits. It will happen. But um, you have to show up in that way. Amazing. Great advice. Thank you so much. Yeah. I got to ask you more about Spelman. I, I know you mentioned how important it was to you. I mean, what an, an amazing institution. Can you give us a little peek into it? What has Spelman meant to you? Um, what was it like to attend Spelman for those of us that didn't get the privilege of going to such a great school? Well, first, thank you for recognizing that it definitely is a privilege. Of course, I'm, I'm quite biased. Um, but, you know, it is probably one of the only places, I would say, in the world where you have this exclusive environment for African-American women or those that believe in the support of African-American women and their um, footprint on the world. So not even, you know, just on the U.S., but on the world. It's a small private school here in Atlanta, and it's, again, what I consider one of the top um, historically Black colleges and universities. Spelman nurtures you. So, you know, it is not unlike other liberal arts schools where you get to expose yourself to a lot, but it does 
give you an opportunity um, as a woman. And there were men in our classes from time to time too, by the way, I should say, or non-African-American people. Um, but as a woman going in and seeing this beautiful array of women that perhaps you may have encountered in your life and maybe not, but you are there with them and you guys are in it together. It is about a sisterhood. Um, you know, I will give an example that Roz Brewer, who's now the CEO of Walgreens, she was the COO of Starbucks and had done a lot of other things. She's a Spelman grad and is on our board of trustees, but literally has made herself available to take calls and conversations with Spelman grads. I was one of those that, that mm. you know, and overwhelmingly received the benefit of her advice on some career things some years ago. But it, it just provides that we're a family and we're sisters. It also, you know, gives you, Spelman gives you a very realistic uh, view of the world, good, bad, and ugly. And so, you know, um, where you can impact and change the world. It also then says, here's what you might face. It's not going to necessarily say, here's what you will face, but Spelman says, here's what you might face and let us prepare you for that and help to prepare others in the world. If they are African-American or not, if they're women or not, um, you know, if they're children, if they're elders, whatever they are, like you are prepared to do some good in this world. And so that's what Spelman gives you. So um, I love it. I, you know, make no mistakes about my excitement for Spelman. We mm -hmm. financially support Spelman. And, um, you know, there is a, a saying that Spelman women can change the world. And uh, we believe that sincerely. And um, that's, it's, it's just been amazing. Again, I'm the beneficiary of a lot. And specifically, again, my mom was a Spelman yeah. graduate. And when I was five years old, I walked around with a Spelman t-shirt, right? So it was pretty clear um, that I was going to be exposed to it. Even if I did not go to Spelman, my, my dad would say, you can go anywhere in the world you want, anywhere. My money is going to Spelman. <laughs> He's very clear about that. He's like, you can do anything. That's my, great. My money is going there. So um, made That's the decision very easily. But it's it's a it's a magical place. And you know, when the pandemic opens up and folks that visit Atlanta, I encourage mm -hmm. I encourage individuals, <clears throat> um, regardless of your walk in life, to go and spend time at Spelman. Let's, I guess, talk on related note about diversity and inclusion. I know that's important to you, and I read that you were the founding member of the Diversity and Inclusion Council at your company. There are lots of opinions and thoughts. I think a lot of people are having the wrong conversations about it. I would, I would love to hear what you think the, the right conversation is to have about diversity and inclusion. And I know that's a loaded question with nine different parts, so you can start wherever you want. So I'll, I'll tell you this. I believe that diversity and inclusion is a give and get. Um, right. I believe in it. Um, I believe in folks understanding stories like my own. Uh, for whatever category you're curious about with me, like I want you to understand it. You may not accept it, but I think that's important. Yep. Um, as an example, I'm raising a son with my husband. I literally talk to him just about every two days about something that's related to an issue around women. Um, because if we don't talk about it, then yeah. you know, there are only other images that he can he can see. And he has someone obviously firsthand in the house that can speak to that. So that kind of stuff is important and it's quite authentic. From professional perspective and just looking at the world, I don't see how we can live without talking about it. 
we are very different. I had a second grade teacher. So I guess I was six or seven years old. Her name was uh, Miss Course or Mrs. Course. And she said to us, I remember reading a book. She said, you all are going to work with people from all around the world. You're going to work with people from different countries and all of this stuff. So you need to learn more about people. I think aside from my parents, this teacher said this to us, my classmates, but to me, and it never left me. And I just was like, maybe she's right, but I'm probably, you know, growing up in Atlanta, growing up in the South, I'm like, I might just work with someone from like Chicago. I didn't really <laughs> think about, you know, this, this really big world. Um, but that's, that's where we are. And it means, again, this understanding of differences. And it means ethnic dif- differences, um, you know, uh, gender differences, sexual identity, um, age, all the things you could think of that are part of, you know, legal protected classes, but just even away from that, the way we all live and, and kind of thrive differently, we have a responsibility as just humans to do that. So I have grown up in that and have believed it. Growing up in Atlanta back then, so I'll, I'll date myself a little bit and say 80s, 90s, um, the city was not as integrated as it is today, mm-hmm. right? So I met the first, my, the first Jewish person in my life that I would consider a friend, I met one year after I started with Turner Broadcasting. This idea of diversity meant that on both sides, she obviously didn't have an African-American friend or, or, or anything like that. So we shared experiences. So it's just one of those things to say, regardless of where you are in life, Brian, you, you need to mm-hmm. own the fact that you have the opportunity to learn. From a corporate perspective, Our organization has a set of core values that are tried and true. Our founders, our company is 60 plus years now, so almost 61 years old, and our founders put these together. Brothers, right? Brothers founded the company? Yes. So our current CEO's father was one of those brothers, and probably the second is his uncle, or was his uncle. Trust, respect, like a lot of these core values over time have been great. The challenge last year with what we were seeing leaning on kind of the shield of our core values wasn't enough. Hmm. And, you know, there was a lot that we were being asked by our teams. There were a lot of questions we were asking on our own. I can remember a very candid and personal conversation one evening with our CEO and um, he has a huge heart, huge heart and said, we've got to do better. (laughs) Like we, you know, he said, "I, I can't change the world. I want to, but we need to do better and what can we do? And I think probably on that Sunday, I said, look, let's be very explicit about our goals. Let's be very deliberate about our conversations and just begin to have a footprint in this work. So um, co-founded with uh, Reginald Washington, who was our president of dining at the time, he's since retired. And um, Aaron Bonham, who's our chief chief merchandising officer, who uh, reports into me now, but we were a team of three with the blank piece of paper Hmm. and said, what are the things we need to go after? And we've really decided that our marketplace, you know, uh, we are not a non-profit organization, Mm -hmm. so we do make money. Mm -hmm. So we needed to understand what that meant from a diversity and inclusion lens, our workspace, what does it mean to work here, as well as, you know, our workforce, how do you advance? Um, how do you move beyond having 
only one uh, African-American person and woman in the C-suite. And then also, you know, other levels of representation of visible diversity, right? So we, we needed to, to kind of put some buckets or categories together. And it's been a journey. It'll be a year in June. Mm-hmm. And it's been great. Um, I've gotten a lot of credit for starting some of the difficult conversations. But the, the thing I would tell you I'm most proud of is that I'm not the only one having the conversation. Yeah. Um, and that's really, really good. And we have more work to do, especially in our stores organization and our, our, our restaurants and so forth with folks within the airports. But knowing that there's an opportunity to talk and be yourself at work and bring your story to work has been eye-opening. There've been a lot of tears, I'll tell you, and a lot of moments of smiling and just thank you for seeing me and hearing me. Yeah, um, It's pretty significant, Brian. I think I know the answer to this, but what was it about last year? Made it clear to you that um, a greater opportunity and responsibility existed? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say very directly, there were things around the shooting of Breonna Taylor, um, um, Arbery here in Georgia. And then of course, when the world, yeah. the world saw the killing of George Floyd. Right. And I know yeah. at the time of this taping, the trial is happening and all of that, but yeah. that was the call to action that, um, our parent company, as an example, uh, sits in Paris. So we are a division kind of in North America here and our COO globally text me. <laughs> when he saw the video and read mm. the press and, and mm. was just upset and angered from France. Yeah. Right. But that was, that was the trigger. Um, mm. And it's extremely unfortunate that that was a trigger because a man lost his life, mm-hmm. a, a daughter, you know, families, you know, they lost a loved one. We all saw that. Um, but that was the point with all of that happening pretty much in a, kind of contained amount of time where the world could no longer say, I did not know that. You yeah. know, I didn't understand that. Um, death is death and, um, you know, excessive force is excessive force. So when you see something on an iPhone video, it is very yeah. hard to turn away. And that's, that's really one of the things that propelled the, um, I would say accelerated the, the discussion. I like your comment of relying on the shield of values. And, you know, I've seen a lot of organizations and leaders struggle because uh, we feel like the values are aligned and we say that we care. We say we care about diversity and inclusion, but how do you show up, you know, and how is it, what actions really make a difference? Do you have any advice for folks as you've worked on this issue so effectively, um, pragmatic actions that can be taken that really make a difference with diversity and inclusion in an organization? I would tell you, Mary, one of the things that will not work, so I'll start there pretty quickly, is making it a bumper sticker. So, you know, I have been a part of um, ERGs or resource groups and things like that, where it really was a bumper sticker and it was a check the box. And as a person of color and a woman, right, I, I didn't feel that anything was moved forward with that. So it was a little bit of just don't do anything. You, you, might, you might be better off just, just mm. not doing it. And so the advice is listening first. Um, you know, as, as we did the work here and some of the other strategies I've been a part of in my career, you have to listen first. And you have to understand 
what you can and cannot solve. Um, and so that's meaningful. And I think sometimes commitments to organizations, um, groups sometimes write a lot of checks. And, you know, that's great because there are a lot of um, organizations that do need the support. So I'm not knocking that at all. But what I would say is, you know, if you're really looking to make a difference, you have to listen and understand and really shape your plan from there and do a few of those things very well, right? Do, do things that make the difference very well. You cannot boil the ocean and, you know, fix the entire world with a thir- you know, 30 or 90 day plan. You just can't do that. No, um, no, it takes at least 120 days. I know, at least, <laughs> right? You know, that's, and so we saw that last year. So we saw a lot of social media posts and a lot of moments of solidarity, which are great. But when you go back and look at those organizations, my personal challenge is what was done after this date. And, you know, there's a bit of silence. So I think prioritizing the things from what you hear and what you can understand make a difference. And also probably the last piece is just understanding and talking very candidly about what is happening. We, we did some listening sessions uh, last summer and one small group, an individual said, you know, to me, and I said, Nikki, it, it, it took too long for an email to come out. It took too long for this. I, you know, I felt you're just being compliant. So you have to be willing to, you know, have the ability to listen and um, explain the things that you can't affect and, and why, and, and be okay with that. It, it's, it's totally, totally okay. But I don't think it's acceptable to do nothing. I'm hearing that, you know, it's interesting you say that because I've heard that across multiple organizations, it took too long. And I think sincerity, authenticity, being willing to take a risk and be a little vulnerable and say something, even if you think it might be the wrong thing. Um, but listening just comes through loud and clear in your examples, you know, really hearing one another and hearing each other's experiences. And the other thing that strikes me about your examples, Nikki, is realizing the space you're in. You're a for-profit organization, and sometimes I think people in this space are trying to lean into doing something else, like becoming a nonprofit or activist. But the truth is, as a for-profit organization, you have tremendous impact on so many lives and making the employee experience better, the customer experience better, Mm -hmm. being a diverse organization. I mean, those are all things that you can control and that are well within what you own. I, I would agree, and I think, you know, that's the piece that, we had to ground ourselves in because I think many organizations kind of when all of this was happening last summer, received a ton of requests from groups to do a lot of different things. Right. And it was basically how you would show up and, and, you know, all of that. But for us, it really was, we were a travel retail organization and we're one of the best by the way. Right. Yeah. So at the same time, we were battling a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you talk about this, storm of everything that was happening. Um, In one day, I remember I was watching the George Floyd funeral service at home because I was working remotely. Um, But before that, we'd been talking about workforce actions and how we could, you know, manage our payroll and cover expenses and all of this where folks were not flying across North America. Borders were closed to get from the U.S. to Canada. Like all of these things were happening. So you, you can't lose sight of that. The hope and the goal is that diversity, equity, and inclusion fit into that for the greater good. That's that's the hope. That's the goal. 
Um, but you, you, you cannot turn into a nonprofit. You can't turn into a volunteer organization mm-hmm. and abandon the core reason why you exist. You can't do that. Right. Right. And you have tremendous power within that purview. I mean, it's tremendous. What you outlined, obviously it's been a super challenging 12 months, (laughs) particularly (laughs) in the um, industry that you're in related to travel and along with all the social unrest and all the issues that we've dealt with collectively and that you've handled Nikki. So let's switch and, and end on this note. Tell us what are you excited about as you look forward for the year ahead in your new role um, as hopefully things are moving forward as the country with the pandemic as well as um, with social issues. What are you excited about going forward? Well you know a couple of things. Um, I believe that everyone should thrive. So I know the economy is taking a hit in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, I am excited to see air travel, which I know I'm biased, right? But I'm excited to see individuals hopping on planes with vaccines, by the way. So I'm going to make that plug with the vaccines Um, and going to see grandparents, going to, you know, you know, college reunions or all of these different things. We're going to get, by the way, someone told me a story the other day of they're able to fly to go get better medical help and medical support than they could because they were locked down at home now that they have their vaccination. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited about this hope. The other piece is that, you know, within our company, there's opportunity. And there's opportunity for us to, you know, look closer at our ability to be more agile. Mm-hmm. And so that is challenging. That is, is hard work and it's very, very challenging, but we are in the midst of that right now. And what can we be? Because agile in one sense. Um, really just our ability to, you know, pivot and move as we've had to do in the last 12 months, maybe not in the most sophisticated way. Um, so how do we bring the right kind of art and science yeah. to doing that, Brian? Like that's yeah. a huge piece for us. We, we are investing and doing a lot of work with digital and, you know, wanting to be leaders in that space. I think we are. I mean, there's some price out there and some things that we're trying. We're not 100% with it, but 80% is okay. So behaviorally, like, what does that look like? And so that's very, very exciting. So personally, I, I love that because it makes our business better. It makes our teams better. But we all get the opportunity to learn again and, and grow. So that part is good. And then, you know, probably the third piece is more personal. Um, I'm looking forward to my son. He's a ninth grader um, being able to live the life of a teenager, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, Zoom school is great. And I applaud, like over the top, all educators, not just teachers, anyone that's touching the education system in the last 12 months. Um, with that, I, I want him to be a high schooler and to go to a dance or, you know, go to a football game and, and do these things. So I'm excited about that because I do think it's going to happen. And maybe I'll take a little vacation somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, your son plays baseball, right? Yes. In yes. what position does he play? So he's in field. So he's at okay. second baseman, second baseman. Yeah. And, and he loves it. So uh, it's a little long on the hot Georgia yeah. spring days and early yeah. summer, but. But that's where the action is right there at that spot. Yes, yeah. I definitely agree. Definitely yeah. agree. Yeah. Terrific. A lot to look forward to. Yes. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's more hope. Um, you know, we've said internally a lot, you have to have a great balance of healthy optimism and pessimism, right? You have to 
you know, you can't have it one way. And so we've seen more of that optimism really kind of fill up the cup. Yeah. That's just really great. I will tell you, it's it's wonderful on my end to walk in an airport and go into our stores and see associates that unfortunately we had to lay off last year that we've been able to call back in many cases. And for them just to say thank you and that they are showing up and ready to work and ready to contribute. Um, again, not the playbook you would have wanted, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a year ago, but that is helpful. It, mm-hmm. it just really kind of gives you the hope. Any parting advice for the college of uh, senior could be uh, at Spelman, could be at Kansas State University. <laughs> uh, just if they say, gosh, I, I'm hearing Nikki and I want to be exactly where she is. Uh, so any advice that you would give that that younger leader, leader to be? Yeah, you know, I would say a couple of things. One, be better than me, right? Just be better than me and know that there are lots of Nikki's out in the world, right? Yeah. I just happen to be one, but, but there are a lot. So um, be much better. The second piece is take the chance. There's, there's little that can harm and hurt you. Don't be reckless, of course, um, but, but be authentic and take the chance. That's, that's really important. Um, if I look back at my college senior self, while I took some risks, there are some others that, you know, I could have, I could have taken some greater risks. And so that would have perhaps taken me on a different path. I'm not sure, but um, there are moments that I could have really, really jumped in a lot deeper. And then I would say, this idea, we talk a lot about mentoring and sponsorship. And I am, again, the beneficiary of a lot of this and, and would have a list of lots of folks like Brent or Greg, Reginald, uh, Denise. I could just name a whole bunch of people. Have a board of directors. And there's a article, I know both of you know this, um, but I think it's a HBR article or something that's very dated. I, I live by that. And, you know, you assemble this board and the board over time naturally changes chairs, right? So people come on and off and that's mm-hmm. okay. Different cycles or steps in your life, it's okay. And you consult and, and people that sit on a true board of directors, and I sit on two here, I'm on, I'm on the board for different reasons than my counterpart, right? We've, we were been, we've been selected for that reason. Yeah. So if you're, you know, a young career professional, a college student, think about assembling that board of directors that different decisions or points where you may have a challenge and you just need the thought partnership or leadership, you know, those are the chairs you want to fill. And it's totally okay to change those board seats from when you're 20 or 21 to when you're 50, mm-hmm. you know, some may stay. Yeah. Yeah. But do that. So that's the advice um, I, I would give. And, you know, not really overly sophisticated. I don't have a ton of things to quote and all of that. But hey, it works. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your wisdom with us. I found this time inspiring. Yeah. I'm thrilled with the work that you've been doing. And thank you so much for sharing with yeah. our audience. I know that all of us got a lot out of this time. Wishing you all the best in the year ahead. Uh, Well, you both are wonderful. So again, thank you for having me uh, and and allowing me to kind of speak freely and and, and kind of put this on the record. There are a lot of things there that um, I'm quite passionate about and you guys have captured that. So thank you for that platform for sure.
Well, that was such an inspirational podcast. Listeners, we hope that you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some great tools that you'll be able to use every day as a leader. And Brian and I are available if you need executive coaching or if you'd like to accelerate the cohesiveness and collaboration of your team, you can reach us at theteamgurus.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe to our show, share your comments and feedback. We will see you next time.